morning, everybody. And if you have just logged in, welcome to uh, New Life Church. We live stream every Friday morning here in United Arab Emirates. And uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to minister to you on this platform. If you are visiting Abu Dhabi or if you're new to this region, we meet on Thursdays um, in Abu Dhabi on the island. Um, and we would love to see you during the week. Over the last couple of months already, we have started a new sermon series in the book of Acts, and today we are looking at Acts chapter 5, the second portion of it. Last week, we were at the end of chapter 4, the last two verses, and up to chapter, or verse 11 of chapter 5. And this passage really was an honest historical account that highlighted the reality of the New Testament church life. We were given a positive example of a godly man by the name of Joseph or otherwise known as Barnabas. And then we were given a negative example of a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And this couple put on the mask of hypocrisy and they lied and they were deceitful and they were struck down by God as an act of of discipline and an act of judgment by the Lord. This lesson that we learned last week was that the, the threat of seduction from within the church is really much more subtle and much more dangerous than the threat and the opposition from outside the church, which we have seen up till chapter 4. So today we continue with that context in chapter 5 this morning, and we have a lengthy passage before us this morning, um, almost 30 verses, but I'm going to read the first, I'm going to read the passage for us. And then we will go into the exposition. So if you'll read with me in Acts chapter 5, we'll start in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Notice there, I think Luke has stopped counting now. So many people have been added. We know um, in chapter 4, there were 5,000, but now we don't know the number. Luke has stopped counting. Verse 15, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and are teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered. Listen here carefully. Underline this verse. We must obey God rather than man. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, verse 40. Well, partially they took his advice. Look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. So they took his advice, but they still ended up beating the apostles. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Please pray with me for a short while as we ask the Lord's blessings on this passage this morning. Father, we thank you again for recording for us all of these facts and instances here in the beginnings of this New Testament church. Thank you, Lord, for this particular account that we are reading this morning of faithful, obedient, disciples. Thank you for their testimony that we are examining this morning. Thank you for their love for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for their integrity to Christ. Please, Lord, help us. Lord, stir our hearts this morning that we would be counted worthy for your name's sake. Please teach us, Lord, as we preach, as we teach, as we hear from you, as your Spirit teaches us this morning. Help us to hear and help us not just to be the hearers, but the doers as well. So please open our eyes. May your spirit illuminate this passage 
to us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, this, this is a, a lengthy passage, so we're not going to go verse by verse like we normally do. Time doesn't really permit us to cover each of these uh, verses in our passage. However, as we do examine this passage this morning, we will see four elements that this early church had um, that, that had helped them propel forward to being the church on mission that they should be. To be in the church that is fulfilling the very purpose for which they were um, created. A church that was rejoicing in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition as they sought to fulfill this mission that God had given to them. And the first element that we see is in verse 12 to verse 16, and that's my first point. This is the prelude. So we're looking at the prelude, we're looking at the context here. In verse 12 to 6, we we have a picture that's been painted for us. It's a picture uh, that gives us an idea of the, the atmosphere in the church and in the surrounding community at the time. Remember, the church was recovering from the, the frightening incident of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, which we looked at last week. And this was not a small incident. It was a huge incident that had a huge impact in the life of this church. The church was standing against sin. And of course, this resulted in the salvation of sinners. Even the judgment that came upon the people in the church resulted in the salvation of sinners. One commentator said once, there was death, there was life, there was judgment, and there was justification. People were being saved as they valued the holiness of God. No hypocrites would dare to join this church because they were afraid of being struck down dead. This wasn't um, an easy believism church at all, a seeker-sensitive church at all. This was a church serious with God, serious with the mission that God had given to them. And yet the Lord was adding many, many, many more people to this church. Our passage also mentions there, that as believers were increasingly added to the Lord, the people of Jerusalem, they, they brought the sick out into the streets. They laid them on, on beds and couches so the apostles would heal them. Um, it also says multitudes from the surrounding cities, not just Jerusalem, the surrounding cities. They also brought sick people and people who were possessed with unclean spirits. And it says they were all healed. There was power in this church, there was power demonstrated through the apostles that God was indeed with them. And just a point I want to make um, on that, John MacArthur, he makes a, a very important point. He says that the early church was not a miracle working church, but it was a church with miracle working apostles. It's important for us to see that not everybody in the church was able to heal. It was the apostles who were given this gift. Um, these signs, as we've already seen, these miracles, these wonders were used by God in a, in a time of transition to attest the, the message that the apostles themselves were uh, preaching. The ability to perform these miracles, as I said, was not given to everyone. Just the apostles and leaders who proclaimed the truth from the scriptures. And these miracles really were there to verify 
the truth of the message that they were speaking. But nevertheless, this miracle working power was clear. It was clear for everybody to see. And I think this was one of the events that led to the second persecution which we read about in our passage this morning. And think about it. The reason for this was because these miracles authenticated the message that they were preaching. The very message that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't want preached. These miracles were authenticating them. They were backing up the message that they were speaking. And of course, this brought fire and problems from the the Sadducees. And I think the other event that led to this second persecution was the growing number of people that were being added to this group. People not just from Jerusalem, but from the surrounding cities were now being added to the church. And of course, the Jewish leaders were very afraid, were very afraid. And it's in this context, it's in this context of great power and the popularity that they shared that the Jewish leaders rose up against the apostles, putting them in prison. And that leads to my second point, the prison. We see the prison in verse 17 to verse 21, the first portion there. Now I mentioned the Jewish leaders. At this time, there were two main groups. They were called the Sadducees and they were called the Pharisees. We've heard, heard a lot about the, the Pharisees. We know about them. But they were, they were religious groups. They were like political parties of our days, but, but using religion for their cause. Now the Sadducees are prominent in our passage this morning. And the way I always remembered what the Sadducees stood for was this little um, rhyme that I remembered from, from uh, my early days in, in the church. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And this is what the apostles were preaching. The apostles were preaching the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what got them thrown into prison. Um, the Sadducees, they planned to gather the council together the next morning to examine and punish these apostles we see in this passage. But we see also that God had other plans. And he sent an angel of the Lord to open the prison and command them to do again the very thing that had got them in trouble in the first place, got them imprisoned. And I think this is the main theme of the story that's recorded for us. Look at Acts chapter 5 verse 20. The scriptures say, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Let me repeat that. Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. This was the command that was definitely going to get them into trouble. They had just been arrested, but now they were going to go right back into the most conspicuous place of all and continue proclaiming the gospel, even in the temple. But notice there in our passage, they didn't question this command. They didn't even go out for breakfast and waste some time. It tells us in verse 21, they obeyed. They obeyed, and of course that led to their second arrest. But notice, notice something in this passage also, that even though God had sent the angel to deliver the apostles, 
the angel was not sent to do the preaching. And the angel could have. The angel could have. But the angel didn't. He told the apostles to go. He told the apostles to stand. He told the apostles to speak to the people the whole message of this life. Notice in your Bible, the word life is in capital. It's a capital L, isn't it? This life, talking about the gospel, talking about the new life that they had just been given. And all of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior, we are charged with the same command to go and proclaim the whole message of this life to all people. And I hope you see this wonderful obedience here by the apostles. I think it's astonishing. It tells us early in the morning, they didn't even have time for breakfast. They didn't even bother about breakfast. Early in the morning, where were they? Not at Starbucks. They were in the temple preaching again. This is my third point, preaching. We see the content of what they were saying in verse 21 to verse 39. When the Sanhedrin sent for the prisoners that were supposed to be in the prison, of course, they weren't there. But then somebody tells them that the prisoners were free and tells them that they are again back in the temple teaching. So the soldiers are sent to recapture them and they are charged again. They are charged with two things. Firstly, their disobedience to the to the previous order, not to teach in the name of Jesus. And, and secondly, they were planning to charge the Sanhedrin with the death of Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin didn't like that at all. So they were charged with that as well. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. Peter simply replied that obedience to God took priority over obedience to man. And then he takes the opportunity, as Peter always does, he takes the opportunity to present the message once again to the Sanhedrin. And while the religious leaders complained that the apostles were unfairly trying to bring Jesus' blood on them, the apostles were bold and they just repeated the historical truth of what had just happened. Look at verse 30. Peter says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I don't think the apostles here were being defensive at all. The apostles' response took the form now of a, of a mini-sermon. And their concern was not to defend themselves. Notice here, their concern was rather to exalt Jesus. Even though they had been arrested now for the second time, they weren't concerned about their welfare. They weren't concerned about their conditions. Their concern was the glory of Jesus. They wanted to exalt Jesus. And that's what Peter does here. He exalts Jesus as the only one who could have given these hardened men new life, which they so desperately 
needed. But notice here that not only did Peter proclaim Jesus as risen from the dead, he also made it clear that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand as a prince and a savior. Doesn't that sound familiar? Peter has already done that in, in two of his sermons that he's already preached. And he's, he's using the same material now in a very shortened version. We saw already in chapter 3 the word prince. It's the same word that was used in chapter 3 when he told the Jews that they had, been, that they had put to death the prince of life. We talked about that. The word prince means author or it means the leader. And what he's saying is that, that Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is God. Jesus is the rightful sovereign of the universe. He is the author of life. He is the author of our salvation. He is the author of our faith, which we read about in Hebrews chapter 2 and 12. And the truth is, before Jesus, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Peter knew this, and perhaps we need to be reminded of this this morning. Jesus deserves our worship. Jesus deserves our obedience. He, who was the author of life, was willing to lay aside his glory and be crucified on a tree. Offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. I think any message that we preach or any, any gospel presentation that we give to anybody else that diminishes the, the rightful position of Jesus, the rightful lordship of Jesus as the author and the prince of our salvation is really not the gospel. It may be a nice encouraging word. It may be a motivational speech, but it's not the gospel. If we don't exalt Jesus and help people to understand who he truly is and what he truly deserves, we must exalt Jesus. To preach Christ as Lord and Savior and to preach about man's culpability and, and guilt is to obey God. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. Despite the circumstances, despite the conditions he found himself in, he was being obedient. He was being obedient and faithful with the message. And of course, this got him into trouble. And it will probably get you into trouble if we are faithful with this message. But to obey God in this requires the power of the Holy Spirit. God's people are under an obligation to obey and to share the truth. And if we do so, even though we may suffer when we are confronted by other authorities, the Scriptures tell us we will be richly rewarded by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember that this entire scene, remember the context, the entire scene is really the fruit of chapter 4. Remember what was happening in chapter 4? The church was praying they were praying, and they were praying for more and more opportunities to reach the community with the gospel. And God has answered their prayers. God has answered their prayers. I heard one preacher say, be careful what you pray for. Sometimes you might just get it. Even though there were opposition and there was persecution, 
many doors were opened through this. Let us also remember they were being obedient. And they weren't so concerned about the, the consequences. They were more concerned about being obedient. And obedience to God requires obedience to the message of the gospel. And this produces a lifestyle of obedience, doesn't it? Um, this is always, the Christian life boils down to an issue of obedience. This is the testimony of the, the New Testament writers. And I've listed a number of verses here this morning. I hope that you'll read with me. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Look at Romans chapter 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Romans 16, 19. For your obedience is known to all. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Of foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Are you getting the picture here? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Then chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Those are just a few. Just a few. There were so many more other verses that I could have put in there about obedience. This is the universal testimony of the, of the New Testament, of the, of the scriptures themselves. I think in summary, if we truly believe what the apostles are teaching, if we truly believe the testimony of Jesus Christ as Lord, then we have to be faithful with that message. We have to be bold in our proclamation of it. I'm not saying, yes, we believe it and then just, and then just hide it under a bush and never let anybody hear about it. If we believe that it has power to save, we need to be obedient in, in proclaiming it. We need to be obedient in sharing it. And we need to be bold in the way that we do that as well. Because to believe is to have the Holy Spirit who speaks of Jesus Christ. And the effect on the hearers we see was one of rage. It was not one of repentance. We see that in verse 33. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, when they heard the message, they were enraged and they wanted to kill like I said earlier on, not everybody is going to respond positively to the gospel. The Bible tells us that the gospel is a two-edged sword. And two-edged swords hurt. There's two edges that will end up hurting you, not just one. It pierces the darkness. It is needful. 
It pierces the darkness. And it is needful for those who are lost in darkness. We see on the previous night in jail, God used supernatural means. He used these angels to deliver the apostles. But now he's going to do something completely different. He's going to use humans to do this. The counsel of one of these teachers of the law by the name of Gamaliel, he's going to use him to prevent any harm coming to the apostles. And that's my fourth point here. We see in verse 42, verse 42, we see this punishment. So Gamaliel was, he was an esteemed religious leader as we read here in this passage. And he had a reputation for scholarship, uh, for wisdom and for moderation. And he was one of the, um, he was the teacher. One of his students was a man, was a young man by the name of Saul. The apostle Paul was tutored under Gamaliel, who we know eventually became the apostle Paul. So the council would listen to Gamaliel. They would listen to him. But we know they did not fully comply with his suggestion to leave the apostles alone. Instead, they ended up beating the apostles for their disobedience to their previous command. And they instructed them again to not preach anymore, to abstain from their preaching. But despite that, their freedom was secured. Their freedom was now given to them and they were released and Notice, they departed rejoicing. They weren't holding grudges. They were rejoicing for the opportunity to be worthy to suffer for the Lord. And the Bible tells us they continued. They continued daily to preach and to teach Christ, both in private homes and in the public temple space where they would go. These men had a singleness of purpose. What they wanted to do was to obey the great commission of their risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please notice how the apostles responded to this persecution. Were they downcast? Did they grumble and complain? Did they deny the faith? Did they complain that a loving and sovereign God had allowed them to to suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their enemies? No. Look at verse 41. It tells us, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor or shame for his name. And their response was one of jubilation. One of jubilation. Because they knew him, they wanted to identify with him. Because they loved him, they wanted to tell others about him. One commentator, he notes two reasons that the apostles rejoiced in their persecution. He says, first, because there was an opportunity to demonstrate their loyalty to Christ. And secondly, because it was a real opportunity to share in the experience of Jesus. I think that's a wonderful observation. Those who share in the cross-bearing will also share in the crown-wearing one day. And they no doubt took comfort in the words of Christ who assured them 
of their father's love in times of opposition. They remembered what Jesus told them, that the world would hate them because the world hated Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, we know later on, he wrote 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says in verse 11, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I think the apostles were rejoicing in this principle. They weren't begrudging their circumstance. They weren't even cursing their accusers. They were rejoicing in the opportunity to identify with Christ and to share in his suffering. I think too often, you know, as Christians in this modern age, we forget that suffering is useful. Suffering is often needful. And that might shock you to hear those words. But persecution has always blessed the church. Persecution is intended to reveal and to reorient our source of joy. If, we are all, if, if all we are doing is living for, for comfort, then perhaps we've forgotten the whole point of the gospel. Perhaps we've for, forgotten what, what Jesus had to do in order to deliver us from our sin. And we don't want to identify with that. We don't want to hear about that. We don't want to think about that. All we want to think about is, is our comfort and our luxuries. That's not what the Christian life is about. Persecution has refined the church and it never will destroy the church. It never will. It never has. And if it leads to prayer, if it leads us to trusting God more, then it's worth it at the end, isn't it? If it leads us to praise God, to, to an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and of the solidarity with Christ in his sufferings, then however painful it is, it may even be welcomed. It needs to be welcomed. John Flavel, who was an English Puritan in the 1600s, he quoted the following. And I just want to give you some context. John, it was difficult to be a Christian in the 1600s. They were being persecuted for their faith. The Catholic Church was, 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 was killing Christians, Protestants, who put their faith in Jesus. It was a terrible, trying time for the, the true Christian church. But this is what he says. This is what he wrote during this time. He says, the knowledge of Jesus is fundamental to all comforts. All the comforts of believers are streams from this fountain. Jesus Christ is the very object of a believer's joy, and he quotes Philippians 3.3, our rejoicing is in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, take away the knowledge of Christ, and a Christian is the most sad and melancholy creature in the world. Because our life doesn't make sense anymore. He goes on, again, let Christ be manifest himself 
and dart the beams of his light into their souls. It will make them kiss the stakes, sing in flames, and shout in the pangs of death as men that divide the spoil. And he wasn't imagining this or inventing some novel. This is what was happening during this time. Christians were being tied to stakes, not, um, not meat stakes. Maybe that's what you're thinking at the moment. Poles, they were being tied to poles and they were being burnt alive, told to recant of their faith in Jesus. And while they were doing that, they were singing songs of praise to Jesus. Praising God. The knowledge of Christ was very dear to them. And the knowledge of Christ in this New Testament church was very dear to them. And the opposition that they faced didn't deter them from their, their task. In fact, it encouraged them to, to be more bold and to proclaim more of the, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the very gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we might expect the opposition to frighten them into silence, but this was not the case. Look at Acts 5 verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Every day. Not just once a week for an hour, they decided to go to church and to sit on comfortable chairs and to enjoy a comfortable AC and to hear somebody else proclaim the gospel. Every day, folks, they took the trip to the temple and they went to people's homes proclaiming this joyful good news of life. I think this is an amazing demonstration of God's grace right here. This is supernatural. This is not natural. The apostles experienced firsthand the truth that God's grace is sufficient. Have you experienced that? Do you believe that? They were not deterred for a moment by the persecution that they were facing. God's power enabled them to persevere and to continue being faithful. But let me finish with drawing your attention to verse 42. Our last verse in this passage. There is really so much power behind this verse. Remember in chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, Peter said to the Sanhedrin council already, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. And now in, in chapter 5, verse 29, he says we must obey God rather than man. And here in verse 42, it says every day, in the temple, they didn't stop going there. They were still going to the temple and they knew they were going to be persecuted there because they were preaching the truth in a, in a religion that rejected the truth. And they went house to house, kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And remember this, the context. They did this right after they were beaten with whips on their backs, 39 lashes each. Can you imagine what their backs must have looked like? Their backs were split open. I don't think they could even walk properly again until it was healed. But here they were with the pain in their bodies, still preaching and proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. 
When last have you shared the gospel, folks? What does it take to get you to stop proclaiming the gospel? What does it take you to stop sharing the gospel with your friends? Charles Spurgeon, he says, We are so gentle and quiet. We do not use strong language about other people's opinions, but we let them go to hell out of charity to them. We are not at all fanatical. We would not wish to save any sinner who does not particularly wish to be saved. Neither would we thrust our opinions upon him. Though we know they are being lost for lack of the knowledge of Christ crucified. And then he goes on to say, Do not drivel away your existence upon baser ends. But count the glory of Christ to be the only object worthy of your manhood strength. The spread of the truth, the only pursuit worthy of your mental powers. Spend and be spent in your master's service. Spend and be spent in your master's service. Winston Churchill, he was asked by his old uh, Harrow school to go back and address the schoolboys. He was at this time 75 years old. Winston Churchill, if you don't know, he was the prime minister of England when England went to war, World War II. And he led England through that terrible time into victory. But here he was at 75 being asked to go and speak at his old school to the boys there. And the headmaster of Harrow, of course, he was excited about this. And he told all of the students at, at that time, he said, Be ready with your pen and papers because you will hear things that you will never hear from anybody else. What a speaker. Well, when the time came, the boys were all eagerly perched on the edge of their seats and their pens and their paper ready in their hands. And Churchill stood up, he unbuttoned his jacket, he slid his glasses to the end, and he placed his thumbs in his waistcoat pocket, and this was his speech. He says, never give up, never give up, never, never, never give up. And then he sat down. <laughs> sat down. But I think that's exactly the message that we're hearing here in Acts chapter 5, folks. The apostles' faith was a battle-tested faith that would, that would not give up under the persecution that they were facing. And when we get into chapter 6, we'll see Stephen, one of the first deacons, he's, he's arrested for blasphemy. And then in chapter 7, he's, he's stoned to death. And then in chapter 8, we see the brutal, the wholesale persecution that, that ravishes the church so much that, that they end up fleeing Jerusalem and, and they scatter to all other parts of the world. And we know that eventually all the apostles are martyred, all of them, except John. But how? Ask yourself, how did they continue to move forward with all of this persecution, with all of this opposition? How did they continue to move forward? How did the church continue to expand? 
How did the church continue to multiply and be fruitful and faithful with the mission that God had given to them? I think the answer is very simple. They made sure that they kept their eyes on Christ because they knew Christ. They loved Christ. And they were willing... Sorry. They were willing to spend and be spent for the master's service. You know, they counted the glory of Christ to be the only object worthy of their pursuit. Even in the face of all that opposition and physical persecution, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy by the Lord to suffer for their testimony about Him. It's so easy, isn't it? To look within at our own circumstances and to just sit here licking our, our wounds and to feel sorry for ourselves for this COVID situation that we're facing and the fact that we can't be together and the fact that we still haven't been able to take communion and oh, this terrible rough deal that, that we've been given. It's so easy to be distracted, isn't it? To be distracted from the very purpose for which we've been saved. The very purpose, the very job that God has given to us. This great commission. And we can so easily be overwhelmed by this current COVID situation and the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Or we can respond like the apostles did. We can find our strength. We can find our purpose in Christ. Just like this first New Testament church. And we can grow through the trials that we face. Somebody said it to me this morning. The Lord can turn our pain into something beautiful. And Jesus gave his followers. And by extension, he gives to us today the job, the target that we need to all be aiming at in Acts chapter 1, which we've already looked at, verse 8. To be the witnesses of Jesus here in Jerusalem, where we are right now, in Judea, the next circle of influence, in Samaria, the next larger circle, and then to the other ends of the world. How faithful are we being with that, folks? That's the target, isn't it? That's the goal. That's the mission for New Life Church, for all Christ's church, to be his witnesses. And let's not give up. Let's not give up, even in the face of challenges and the face of persecutions. I don't think we'll ever face these type of persecutions that the apostles did, folks, by no means. But there are trials and challenges nonetheless that we're facing, isn't it? And let's take the commission of our Lord seriously. And let's take the commission joyfully and seek to fulfill the mission that God has given in our lives personally and in our lives corporately by trusting the Lord to build his church and to be willing to spend and be spent in our master's service. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to us today. Lord, it's so difficult to 
preach to screens. I wish the church was here in front of me so I could see their faces and I could see their responses. But Lord, I pray your spirit would help us to respond in a way this morning that would honor you and bring glory to you. Help us, Lord, to change and conform into what you want us to be, people who are faithful, people who are obedient, and people who love you, people who love telling others about our Savior who has saved us from our sins. So Lord, please use us this week. Continue to use us as a church. For your glory and our joy, I ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 